And today, I'm going to give a little preface of a review and just do a review of John chapter 8. Now, we're going to focus primarily on those last verses. But in order for us to understand what's about to take place at the end of this chapter and what we're transitioning into, it's important for you to understand everything that led up to it. So John chapter 8, that very last verse. I want to read the last verse of John 8 before we get into the rest of it and kind of give an explanation for what's happening. The very last verse, or next to last verse in John 8. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Guys, there's something coming. There's something coming in the story of John. Something coming in the life of Christ. And we make a hard right in this chapter. And there's a transition that takes place. And and we see it throughout And it's kind of nuanced, and then suddenly at the end of this chapter, you see, like, wait, we see the direction that we're heading. And it's in John chapter 8 that becomes crystal clear that we're taking a journey to the cross, that we're heading to one very specific destination, a destination that Jesus knew about the whole time, a very clear destination. And you see this, once the Jews pick up the stones, the conclusion is clear, all right? There's a phrase that we've used, we've seen used a few times in the book of John. We saw it in John chapter 2 when the, with the wedding at Canaan and Galilee when he turns water into wine. And he looks at his mom and he says, my time has not yet come. And this is going to be a thought that we run into throughout the book of John. My time has not yet come. His time hadn't yet come. And you'll see it constantly. There's these moments where Jesus basically is about to have a bunch of near-death experiences or at least people that are, have, um, have a desire to take his life away. But his time has not yet come. And we see this constantly. Like, but we also know his time has not yet come in John 8, but his time is coming. And Jesus came to this earth to die. And Jesus came to this earth not just as a man. And the thing that's going to be established very firmly and very concretely at the end of John chapter 8. And it's one of the most beautiful truths in all the Bible. And it's the thing that sets us apart from a majority of other world religions and even some religions that tie themselves to the life of Jesus. And it's at the end, that phrase that I read to you, that to us did not seem that profound. Before Abraham was, I am. It's a cool thought. It sounds poetic. But what Jesus did right there was he changed the course of human history. This is the moment when all debate ends as to whether or not Jesus is here to be a good teacher, whether or not he's here to teach us good moral lessons, or whether or not he is God on earth. John chapter 8. I'm going to kind of walk you through um, walk you through what's going on here. We've got three times that the Jews make reference to kill him, or at least a desire to kill him. Verses 28, 37, and 40. And he says in verse 28, he says, When you've lifted up the Son of Man... When you've lifted up the Son of Man. Now, this is a reference back to John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he begins to explain to him what's coming. And he tells him, and Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. And you remember Jesus says to him, you're, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't get it? If you don't get this, how am I going to explain to you the deeper things? And then he goes on, and he proceeds, and he says something really profound. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we talked about this a couple months ago now. Serpent in the wilderness. 
They called it Nehushtan. It was this moment in Jewish history where the people rebelled. They pray, God, deliver us. Deliver us from the consequences of our sin. And the consequences of their sin were snakes. This is like the worst possible consequence. I really think, I actually, I don't know if I would sin if snakes were involved in the consequences to each of my sins. Like, I hate snakes. I hate, I hate them, all right? And the, the worst is that now I have a nephew named Elijah who loves snakes, all right? So he's always, like, trying to find them. Like, ah, ah. You know, but, like, but this is what happens. The Jewish people rebel, and God sends snakes. And then he tells them to do something really weird, all right? He tells Moses, he says, I want you to take your staff, and I want you to make a bronze serpent around it. Okay, it's weird. It's like, go do a craft project. Okay, Lord, people are dying over here, you know. Yeah, yeah, go do the craft project. So he goes, and he puts a bronze serpent around this pole. And he holds it up on a tall hill. He says, anybody who looks at this is going to be saved. And then John chapter 3, that most of us are really familiar with. If you grew up in church at all, have any history within Christianity, then you were probably the first verse that you likely learned was John 3, 16. God so loved the world. He gave his only son. Now, guys, the context of John chapter 3, verse 16, is this story. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that all who believe in him would have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, so you've got this, as Moses lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What is he talking about? Oh, that, that was not rhetorical. I apologize. You must have thought it was rhetorical. What's he talking about, being lifted up? The cross. That's right. So we're heading to the cross. And right there in verse 28, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, and he's telling this to a group of people who don't have a clue what he's talking about. They actually assume they actually assume in one of the stories that he is being suicidal. They're like, oh, I guess he's going to go kill himself. It's like, no, 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 you're totally missing it. You're totally missing it. He's not suicidal. You are the ones who are about to try to put him to death. Okay, so next slide, John chapter 8. How do we get here? How do we get to a place where all of a sudden the Jewish people that Jesus came to redeem, that he came to love, that they want to kill him? This is something that when you... And you just hear like kind of a broad brush painted about Jesus. People would never assume, would never assume that this would be the man that people would want to kill. He comes to love. He comes to heal people. He comes to like display the reality of the love of heaven and make it manifest on earth. Why on earth would people watching that man's life want to put him to death? Okay, so we start in beginning of John 8. The very first story. He remembers John 8, 1 through 11. And I know you've got your cheat code right there in front of you. You've got your Bibles open. John 8, 1 through 11. What's the first story that we covered in this chapter? Do you remember? That's right. There we go. Thank you, Ian. All right. Woman caught in adultery. There's this woman who is brought in. Now, do you remember the context? Jesus is teaching a group of people. So imagine, I'm sure it wasn't quite like this, but imagine something similar. Jesus is teaching a crowd. We're in the middle of a service, all right? You got everything's like planned. Here it is. We're, we're going down the line. We're teaching this. And, and all of a sudden, a group of people come in, religious leaders, with a woman caught in the act of adultery. We don't know what this means. We don't know if this means she was wrapped up in a blanket. But we know that in the middle of his sermon, 
They bring her to the front, and they throw her down in the middle of the crowd. Interrupt this sermon. And Jesus proceeds to humiliate them. All right? Do you remember what happens? He, he just stops, and instead of addressing the woman who's been thrown down in the middle of his sermon, imagine that. Okay? We're teaching just like this. Okay? One guy in the front, people listening, and suddenly... People come in, make a big scene, throw a woman down wrapped in nothing but a blanket right there in front of everybody. And what does Jesus do in response? He doodles. That's all the Bible tells us. He bends down. He scribbles in the dirt. Okay? doesn't tell us what he scribbled. People make lots of conjectures. The all we know is that he doodled. And so he's down there in the dirt, ignoring them. He makes this awkward scene and finally looks up and says, Oh, sorry, guys. I forgot you were still here. All right? In essence. And he's like, the one of you that's sinless, if you go ahead and grab a stone and throw it at her, that'd be great. And they all drop their stones. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they walk away. So the very beginning of this chapter, we have a version of Jesus that sometimes is uncomfortable for the version of Jesus that's widely spread in our culture. And this is the Jesus who humiliates people. Very intentionally with purpose, and he's going to be the Jesus who humiliates people throughout this chapter. So much humiliation, in fact, that people want to murder him for it, okay? Now, as I'm saying that, I want you to understand, guys, there are things that you're going to hear said about the Son of God. There are going to be descriptions, personality traits attached to the name of Jesus in our culture that are not consistent with what we find in this book. And I don't say these things to be like, oh, I'm going to say the new profound thing. I say these things because I want to know the real Jesus. I want to know who he is. I want to know everything about him. Everything. And not just because it's important because I call myself a Christian and it's in the Bible. I want to know it because what I find about Jesus is exactly who I want to be. And everything we find about the Son of God is not just meant for an educational purpose. Everything you ever learn about Christ is an invitation. Everything that you read about Jesus, it's an invitation. When you read it, just assume that in the back of your mind you're hearing, hey, I dare you, go duplicate it. Okay? Everything we learn about Jesus is meant for imitation. Woman caught in adultery. This is weird because these religious leaders, they pick an ungodly fight and they lose. In front of all the people that they most want to impress. The reason they're there is because Jesus is taking some of the respect that they love, cherish, and need for political and personal gain most. Now, side note, put this up here on the slides because this is, this is something that's just a simple lesson that I, that I feel like changes the, my, the way I interact with the world a lot of times. And it's, do you know why the Pharisees don't fight fair? It's because they don't know God. And the reason this is important is because we cannot be surprised when lost people act like lost people. Have you ever had one of these moments? When you're interacting with somebody and you're like, I can't believe they would do that. Well, guys, when lost people act like lost people, they're proving the Bible right. But when saved people ask, act like lost people, something's wrong. And if lost people act like saved people, something's wrong. Like, lost people 
act like lost people. Because Scripture promises you, you will know people by their fruits. So when you're talking to somebody and they're doing something bizarre and illogical and it doesn't make any sense, and if they don't know Jesus, that's that we get to have an extra level of grace with people that don't know the Lord. Because we see that and we say, you know what? The Bible promised me you would act this way. Okay? Side note, totally unrelated to everything else we're going to talk about. Okay, so how do we get here? How do we get to a place where the man who showed and expressed more love than every other human being in history combined could suddenly be in danger of being put to death? Here's some highlights. Here's just some moments throughout John chapter 8, some things that Jesus said to people. You don't know me nor my father. You will die in your sin. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. You are of your father, the devil. If I were to say that I don't know him, the father, I would be a liar like you. Do you see why there's some discomfort? All right. Like just, just imagine, like, okay, you walk up to somebody and say, hey, what's your dad's name? I'm like, oh, my dad's name's Butch. He's like, nope, it's Satan. <laughs> Bro, I thought we were good. You know, like, but this is what happens. This interactions that Jesus, the interactions that Jesus is having in chapter 8 are very, very different than the way that I usually assume Jesus will behave with other people. Those are some of the highlights. The, the, here's a quick list of the people that he makes mad. He upsets the religious leaders. He upsets the unbelievers. But finally in verse 30, something happens and a shift takes place. In verse 30 of John chapter 8, it says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The next line, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. That phrase is bizarre to me. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. He's talking to a group of people who've begun believing in him. And then he proceeds to say a lot of stuff that didn't make any sense to them and was so offensive that all of a sudden the people who believed him in verse 30 want to kill him in verse 59. Now why? It's one thing I've noticed about Jesus that is sometimes bizarre to me when I read these stories, but I think is very important. And you see it in verses 25 and 27. I have this up on the screen for you. He does, he does very little to explain what only the Spirit of God can explain. They ask him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. They did not understand. And this is important. This is important because what I found is, and I noticed this especially in the life of the disciples. You see people, you know, you see these, these people that are Jewish people. Some of them, I'm assuming, they've heard a lot of sermons of Jesus. Some of this might be their first. But in their interaction, he's saying things that are bizarre to them, that don't register and don't make sense and don't compute. But then I read the response of the men who spend every day with him. And these disciples, they do things just as bizarre. They, they're constantly like missing the point. Until finally, even after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, when the story of the early church begins in Acts, in Acts chapter 1, Judas, Judas has died. He's hung himself after his betrayal of Jesus. There's only 11 disciples, and now they need to replace him with one. And so what do they do? They cast lots. In other words, they gamble. It's like 
legitimately, this is what, this is the equivalent for us. They're like, guys, God has left the future of the kingdom in our hands. What should we do? Let's play rock, paper, scissors and figure out who's next. That's what's happening here. They cast lots. It's bizarre. That's not something that people walking in the spirit do. Just in case you're wondering, if you come up to a crossroads and you find yourself playing rock, paper, scissors, repent, okay? Go fast and pray. Get discipled, something. But like that's not, that's not the way of the kingdom. But that's what the disciples were doing. And why? Because they're one chapter away from the spirit of God descending upon them, coming and baptizing the church is one, the 120 that are sitting in an upper room, and everything changes. So when we read this, we have to understand this is a group of people that do not yet have the Spirit of God to explain things to them. But this is also an encouragement to us. Because those of you who love Jesus, those of you who would call Jesus friend, those of you who know you've been bought with a price and your life is a life lived as an expression of faith to God and you are a son and a daughter of the Most High, you do walk in the Spirit. And that's why, that's why this should be an encouragement to us. The places where we would come, we would say, I, I don't understand. The Spirit of God explains things to us. That's why we don't play rock, paper, scissors when we're seeking direction about our life. We go directly to the throne of God where we can find mercy and receive grace to help in a time of need. And his sheep hear his voice, and they know him, and they follow him. We'll get to that in chapter 10. It's just a little, little early, early gift there to you. Okay, how did we get here? It's a verse in uh, Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to have up there for you. Matthew eleven six. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. This comes in a story where Jesus is has been uh, sought out by John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in prison. Right after this story, he's going to be beheaded. And he's in prison. He's kind of given up everything, everything to be a prophet of the Most High, to be the one who was the forerunner who came before Jesus, who baptized Christ. And now he's been put in jail. And he's got this time to think, and he's kind of questioning, and he wants to make sure. And he sends some messengers to Jesus, and he says, do I need to wait for somebody else, or are you the real deal? And Jesus tells him, here's, here's what I do. And he goes through a list of all the things that Isaiah told us in chapter 61 to expect the Messiah to do. And then he says this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So here he is, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, like the man that Jesus even himself said, there's never been one born of woman like this man. And there at the end, he's like, I, I just got to know. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And this entire chapter is in a story. It's a story of people being offended by Jesus. And this is a, this is a really important shout out to us. That as we read the word, we say, you know what? I'm going to find things about the personality of Jesus that sometimes will make me uncomfortable. If my version of Jesus is that he is only grace and love, and that he is never, that he never has anything to say about sin, that he never has anything to say about judgment, I can have that view of Jesus, but I just have to also admit that the Bible doesn't. And if I'm going to humble myself underneath the Word of God, and if I'm going to say, I exalt the Word of God over the opinions of Kurt, 
and I exalt the truth of heaven over my perception of truth in my own head, then what I'm going to say is I want to have I want to have a view of Christ that lines up with what I find in the Word of God. And I do not want to be offended by him. What offended him? It's unique as I was reading through this because I realized so often I hear these phrases that I'm used to because I, I grew up in church, spent, spent my, I think I was, I don't remember how many weeks, I was like probably six days old or something the first time I came into church. You know, and I've been there, I think I, I'm trying to think if I've missed more than like one or two Sundays in my whole life of actually being in a church building on a, on a Sunday morning. All right, like I just, this is what I'm used to. And there's these phrases that I run into in this chapter that are almost just kind of like, oh yeah, you're the light of the world. Like I know that. I got three songs to sing that have that phrase in it, you know? But as I read this, all of a sudden I realize when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, do you know what everybody else hears? I'm in the dark. When Jesus says, I want to offer you freedom, you know what they hear? I'm offended you just called me a slave. When Jesus says, hey, my father is in heaven, what he's saying to them is, and your father is Satan. And when he says, I am God, they have to recognize, but I hate you. And that means if I hate you, then I'm hating God. And all these phrases and all these expressions that I have celebrated my whole life, Jesus is the light of the world. Matthew 5, he invites me to also be the light of the world. I love these thoughts, to live in the freedom that he's giving. If the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. We love that phrase. But in the context of that passage, do you know how people respond? Not in repentance, not running to an altar, not to say, thank you, God, for your freedom. They say, how dare you call me a slave? And what I have to do when I read this, what I have to do, and I have to do it constantly when I'm reading the Word of God, it's easy for me to read this and think, I'd be the good guy in this story. I would have been the one, Jesus. 500 Jewish people out there in the crowd, all of them offended except me. Throwing my hands up in the masses, all of them fleeing from you, hating you, and I would love you. But truth is, I, I wouldn't be. I would have been... I would have been the offended guy. I would have been the offended guy without the Spirit of God. When I read these stories, guys, it's really easy for us to put ourselves in some kind of really sweet, holy, sanctified light. But in all actuality, in all reality, there's a good chance that I would have been the offended guy. When I read these stories, it, it invites me to look at my own heart and to say, first of all, Lord, I admit that without your light, I'm in the dark. And that without me walking in your freedom, I am a slave. And if you're not my father, Satan is. I have to admit that as I read these things. And it's important to let that take root in my heart, to really stare at these lessons that Jesus is teaching and to realize there's a reason these people are offended. There's a reason that this bothered them. There's a reason that this chapter culminates after 59 verses of him sharing truth and expressing love and saying things that we adore. There's a reason that people pick up stones and want to throw them in such large quantities that he dies. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's a bad start. 
to any discussion with God, by the way, just in case you were wondering. But if you would, open up to John chapter 8. We're going to read the end of this, and then I'm just going to kind of explain to you the things that we learn, the things that we learn from the end of this chapter before we get into a time of response. John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. Go ahead and stand to your feet for me. Stand to your feet. Let's finish out this chapter. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying, You are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And Jesus, I'm going to ask you, I know I've kind of here at the end, just got a, a few more things that I want, to, I want to really be able to pull out of this passage and make sure that, we, that they take root in our heart and are applied to the way that we live. And Father, as we, as we dive into these last few verses, I pray right now, Lord, please, I know I know that there is a tendency in the, the parts of me, the parts of my flesh that, you know, that still try to like come in and have an influence and an impact on the way that I live and the way that I think and the things that I do and the things that I say. Lord, I know that there is still a fence in there somewhere. And so I ask you to call it out. Love us enough to not leave us the way we are. Call it out, Father. Father, and then invite us into these glorious truths. Father, I was in darkness until you shined on me. I was dead until you took away the taste of death out of my mouth. Father, may we know it, may we celebrate it, may we live in it. In your name. You guys can have a seat. We're not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon. Jesus says some things in this passage that I love. He says, He says, if you, if you believe in me. If you keep my word, you will never see death. Never see death. The next phrase that they use in there is never taste death. It means like you, you just won't be familiar with it. You just won't know the taste of it. You know, it's like something like my dad just got back from, from Peru, and he posted this tragically offensive picture on Facebook of a guinea pig on his plate, deep fried. And... And I was sitting there, and I was looking at it, and I thought, praise the Lord that I, I don't know the taste of guinea pig. I don't. And by the Lord's blessing and favor upon my life, I never will, you know. But my dad does. He knows the taste of it. 
But like this is what it's saying. It's saying you, you will never have to know what it tastes like. You never have to know the taste of death. You're never going to see it. And again, they, they hear this and they're offended. And why are they offended? They said because Abraham died. And they ask him some questions. They ask him this question. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham? Yes. The answer is yes. And I, I love this. I, I love this thought because you will see this consistently from the Jewish people. They're like, oh, you think you're better than the prophets? Yeah, I do. Like, oh, you think you're, you think you're greater than, than this one? You think you're better than Moses who gave us bread from heaven? Yeah, I do. I think I am. I think I'm better than him. Actually, I think I breathed him into existence, and I think I gave him life, and I think I was there when I formed him in his mother's womb, and I think I was the one who put a purpose on his life, and I think I was the one who breathed everything in his plan solely to get to the point where I would come into the world and would be the completion and fulfillment of everything that Abraham, Moses, and every prophet was. And that's his answer to these questions, and that answer is so offensive that they want to kill him. So what happens? Death. Death no longer has to be the final answer. Guys, what he's preaching to them is the most beautiful sermon that will ever be heard in all of human history. And I don't mean specifically the things he says in John 8. I mean the truth that's overarching here that he's trying to tell them. You don't have to know what death tastes like. Faith conquers death. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. If you'll go to that for me real quick, Trey. Or, wait, Omar, sorry, sorry. I mean to give Trey the credit over there. All right, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Guys, what he took away, he took away the fear of death. Here's the thing. Death used to be the worst news, and he made it the good news. Do you realize that? Like, this is the beauty of the gospel. It's that we still, that what happened before, like, as we lived, the greatest fear that people would have was getting to the end of life. And suddenly, he made the moment that should logically in our flesh be the most terrifying moment of all of our lives. He made it the moment that's full of most hope. They switched places. The most terrifying became the most hopeful. And he took away the fear of death so that you and I, when we, because we know we don't have to taste, I never have to know what death, what death tastes like, I don't have to fear it anymore. It's why Paul could say something in Philippians 2 when he says, he says, oh, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is better by far. But it's better for your sake for me to stay. So I will. And guys, I don't know if you realize this, but that's the story of my life. And that's the story of your life. If you're walking in the Spirit, your desire is, I want to leave. Guys, I'm, I'm a dad for the first time in my life. Two months. My son is actually here for the very first time. Woo! I'm so hyped about that. Yeah! Don't clap too loud. He's sleeping. But uh, he's... Uh, He's adorable. He's looking like way more swag at two months than I've ever looked in 35 years of my life because my wife dresses him really well. But guys, like, I love being a dad. And I, I can't tell you, like yesterday, 
I'm sitting there with him at the changing table, and I'm just like, I started crying because I'm like praying this just things over his future and like who he's going to be and like what kind of man he's going to present to a lost world. And one of the prayers that I've always prayed over my own life and that I pray over yours as well, and that now I pray very, very intentionally over my son, is may, may he live in such a way that atheism drops dead in front of him. Agnosticism, that can still remain. Agnostic means that you just kind of choose not to think about it. But atheism saying absolutely, definitively, there can be no reality of deity. I want people, when they meet me, to say, well, that became an impossibility. I can doubt him. I can wonder about him. I can question whether or not I want to submit my life to him. But I know he's there. I pray that over my son. Guys, I, I love thinking about his future. I love thinking about what he'll become. It's like... Man, it just fills up more, more, more time in my day than I ever could have imagined it would, you know, just in this short two months. But my desire, my desire is still to depart and to be with Christ. It's better by far. I love my son. I want to be there to watch him grow up. I want to be there to encourage him. I want to get to be like his father and a friend, but mostly a father and make sure that that balance never gets too uncomfortable. But like at the same time, guys, like... I trust Jesus, and my desire is to be with Jesus. I love my son. I love my wife. I love what I do with my life. I love the calling to get to shepherd and equip people. I love, I love this campus, like even strategically getting to be here on Sundays because the Lord put a calling on my life to get to make an impact on this campus 14 years ago that he's never taken away. I love being part of the city of Lexington. I love these things, but my desire is to depart. My desire is to be with Christ. I want to see my love. I want it more than I want anything else, anything. And that sounds weird and uncomfortable. It sounds more uncomfortable to me now as a dad and as a husband than it ever has. But then I, then I read in my word and I see what Luke 14 tells me. It says you need to hate your wife and your children, your brothers and your sisters, your mothers and your fathers, and you need to hate your own life. What he's saying is you need to love Jesus so intensely that when the Spirit of God comes into your life, it will not just get you excited because you get to spend an eternity in heaven and don't have to go to hell. It will, make, it will wake up a love in you that so overwhelms every other love you've ever had and experienced that you will find in your heart this desire and this yearning to be with Jesus. And it will take away the fear of death, and it will take away the lifelong slavery of saying, I don't know what's going to happen on the other side. And this is one of the ways that we know we are in him, that we know we love Jesus because something happens in our hearts that we cannot do in ourselves. And all of a sudden, the thing that scared us most, we look forward to. That's the beauty of the gospel. Do you see that? And for some of you in here, that might be a moment where you say, wow, I, I'm still scared to die. I don't want you to take that as condemnation. Just take this to the Lord and say, God, if what your shed blood and if what your resurrection from the dead was intended to do was to take away the fear of death from me, then I want to live that out. Because what happens here, 
when Jesus is talking to these Jewish people. It's the undoing of Eden. All right? In Eden, what happens? Woman, she gets this offer. Do you want to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Oh, Jesus told us, or the Father told us not to eat of it, that even if we touch it, we'll surely die. And the serpent says, nah, you won't die. And sure enough, she eats. She gives to her husband to eat. They immediately, they're covered in shame. They realize they're naked and they flee and they hide from God. Because what Jesus is offering us is the undoing, the undoing of everything that happened in Eden. Because they did surely die. Immediately, the first death in human history happens. It's the death of an animal that God had to kill to take the skin and to make a covering for them. Right after that, what happens? There's the first death of a human as their son kills their other son out of jealousy and envy and strife. And death begins to happen. It begins to take hold in the world and it begins to take over. And then suddenly, Jesus shows up. He says, guys, I got something for you. You don't have to know what death tastes like. And when you taste physical death, it's going to taste sweet. Because you're going to find out that what physical death this side of heaven is, guys, it's spiritual life for all time. The undoing of Eden. Ultimately, we come to the grand finale. Before Abraham was, I am. He says, truly, truly in here. I thought this was cool. As I was looking these words up in like the original languages, you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. Old Testament is written in Hebrew, small pieces in Aramaic. Um, there's really easy ways now, you know, to be able to study the Bible online and get to find all this stuff out. And I encourage you as you study the Bible, I man, get as deep as you can. It just, when you find out how the links that God has gone to, to make sure that our that the word of God that we have in front of us is perfect, can be trusted, is established, and is worth, is worth like basing everything in your life upon. Oh, it's so, it's so encouraging. The word truly, truly in the Greek in this passage, the word in Greek is pronounced this way. If you want to say truly, truly in Greek, you'd say amen, amen. That's the way it's pronounced. Amen, amen. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, this is a statement of death for the vast majority of other faith faith expressions because Jesus is saying that he's God. There's a lot of people that will debate this with you. Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be deity. He just came to be a good teacher. He was a moral person, all these things, guys. The word of God makes it crystal clear. There's a moment, this moment right here in verse 58, when he says, before Abraham was, I am. There's a moment they pick up stones because what he said What he said, if he was not telling the truth, was worthy of death. He said before Abraham was Yahweh. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham ever got here, I was already God. Before fruit was ever eaten in a garden, I was already God. When everything was formless and void and there wasn't even blackness out there because nothing existed, my Father, my Spirit, and myself were completely and utterly content. I was God. 
and I am God. And this moment right here, this moment right here is one of the most important things that you and I, you and I will grow to love, to appreciate, to claim, and to base our lives around as we fall in love with Jesus. When he says, I am. One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite like little uh, discussions in church history comes from a man named C.S. Lewis. Who in here has read a book by C.S. Lewis? All right. Okay, good. Now, if you've not read a book by C.S. Lewis, here's what I want you to do. All right, you need to get two books. One, you need to get The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Two, you need to get Mere Christianity. Read a chapter of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first, then jump into Mere Christianity. For some of you, it might intimidate you, but, oh, it's incredible. And in Mere Christianity, he begins this conversation. A radio broadcast during World War II in England. C.S. Lewis was a professor Professor of actually like medieval literature, but he they came to him. The BBC said, hey, we need something. We want to encourage the people as they're in the middle of all this war and bombs are dropping on them every day. And he said, well, I'll do a discussion of Christianity. And they took those broadcasts and they printed them. And the print version of those broadcasts is called Mere Christianity. And he walks from the beginning of life and faith and a trust that there is a deity out there. And then he begins to slowly walk you into the reality, the fact that that deity is God, that that deity had a son named Jesus, that that deity gives the gift of his spirit to those who come to faith in him, and that he will do things in your life that would be impossible for you to do without him. And in that discussion of whether or not God's real, there's this, there's this uh, conversation that he has, and it's called the liar, lunatic, or Lord. And what he says is, Jesus has not left us the option of thinking he's a good moral teacher. Because what Jesus claims is profound, and he goes out of his way to make sure that he lets people know, I'm God. And it's the reason that people constantly want to kill him until they finally succeed. So when you have discussions, you have discussions with friends, discussions among your family with people that might say, hey, I believe Jesus was good. Some might even say, I believe that he's like deity, but maybe like a little bit less than you say he is. Like, guys, there's three options. Three options is what C.S. Lewis says. And I love, I love the truth of this, even just intellectually. Jesus left us with three options. One, you can say he's a liar. You can say that what he said just was not truth. That when he says, I am, when he says, I am God, you can assume, I just don't believe you. That is an option left on the table. You can assume that he was a lunatic, that he was crazy, that he said, I am Yahweh come to earth in human form. And you can be like, that dude's cray. He just got a lot of people to believe him. Maybe he just talked good for some reason. All right? You can believe that. Or, or you can come to the conclusion that C.S. Lewis comes to, that I know I've come to in my life, and I trust many of you have. And that, and that is that based on the evidence of his life and everything we know about him, he was not a liar. And based on the way that he shows love and based on the truth that he gets to express in a way that only God could be blamed for, that he was not a lunatic. And the final conclusion is he is the Lord of all. And not only is he Lord, but he deserves my life, my love, my allegiance. And he deserves the privilege of getting what he paid for. Because I was bought with a price. My life is not my own. It belongs to him. That leads us to the final thing. If he's Lord, then what's next? Put on here a few different options, like it's all or nothing. You can either never see death or you can taste death for eternity. You can live in lifelong slavery or you can be free indeed. 
and ultimately it's heaven or hell. The last one, I actually typed that in, heaven or hell, and then I like deleted it. I was like, nah, it's a little intense. Then I was like, what am I doing? No, like, I'm going to talk about the truth of the Word of God. And I realized, like, there's something in me that still hesitates because I'm like, ooh, maybe that's a little bold. But, guys, the truth is it's important for us to recognize this because what this means, I mean, it means something important for my life. But I'm in a place now where, like, I know him. I love him. I've met him. He's taken things in my life, and he's changed them in a way that I know I could not do without him. He's shown me evidence. I tell people all the time when I talk to atheists, I say, I wish you could hop in my mind for 30 seconds because if you could have 30 seconds in my head, you'd never doubt again. That's all you'd need. If you could have 30 seconds in my head, you would never doubt him. But you can't. You're stuck in your head. And I'm trusting that God wants to do in your head what he's done in mine. And I love telling it to atheists because the crazy thing is, I remember I was sitting down over like coffee one time with an atheist and he was like, yeah, I just don't believe that there's a God And all of a sudden, I feel like the Lord just reminds me, kind of gives me this sweet thought. It's, hey, Kurt, I gave him the breath that it took to say that phrase. (laughs) Do you realize that? Like, guys, he is sovereign, and he's good. And I know where I'm spending eternity. I know that the moment, the moment that I leave this life, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ, and suddenly I'm going to taste life for all eternity. I know that's what's going to happen to me, but I don't know that about everyone out there, and I don't know that about everyone in here. And the reason that I have to make sure that when I'm typing up slides that I don't delete things like heaven or hell is because, guys, it's a reality. It's a reality for me, and it's a reality for you, and it's a reality for every person out there that we are all going to live forever. Do you realize that? I told you this before. It's one of my favorite phrases. I was praying one day, and I just heard the Lord say, Hey, Kurt, you know that one day you're going to have a one millionth birthday? Sometimes I have these thoughts in my head, and I can tell they're completely exterior from me. And I was like, all right. Now, that was a weird thought. Does that line up with the truth of God's word? Yeah, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to have a one millionth birthday. And I was like, wow. So part of the end of my sermon today is that I would like to invite you all to my one millionth birthday party. You can all be there, but you can only be there. You can only be there if you decide to not taste death. And if you recognize that he is Lord of all, and that if he is Lord of all, then that means something. That means that we got two offers on the table. We got all, or we got nothing. We've got the opportunity to give him our lives, or at least to say, Lord, give me faith Wake up a trust in me and a hope for all eternity. Our guys, we have a life lived this side of heaven apart from them and a life lived eternally apart from them in a place called hell. And that's true for every person you run into, one or the other, and that should do something in me. That should wake up an urgency in me. should wake up an urgency in the way that I pray, an urgency in the way that I have conversation. It should wake up an urgency in the way that I sing in response at the end of a sermon. It should wake up an urgency that by the time we walk out of this place, that it's going to change the way that I walk out. If I really believe that there is a real place called hell where the vast majority of all of humanity will spend forever apart from the one thing they were made, created, and formed in their mother's wombs to most crave. And you know it, and I know it, 
And if you've met a version of Jesus that you are completely comfortable keeping to yourself, then please, may I be the first to tell you, you've not met the Jesus of the Bible. And when you meet the real thing, he, he changes everything. He's too big not to come out. So right now, we're going we're gonna to respond. We're going to respond with a time of worship. We're going to respond with an opportunity to come and take communion. We're going to respond with a time of guided prayer over nations here in a little bit. But right now, first thing I want to do, I want to invite, I've got a few friends that I talked to um, that have been, uh, we've requested they would come down here to the front just to be available for prayer. So they're going to come down here to the front. If you're somebody who you realize through what we've talked about, like, man, I, I got to deal with some stuff, then come down here to the front. There's nothing special about coming to the front. If you want somebody to pray with you, if you want to come down here, these carpets are really comfortable. If you want to get on your knees, I encourage you. If you want to just have a time with the Lord in your seat, feel free. But guys, let's get real with Jesus and ask him. So I was praying. I just had this a word that had been kind of popping in my head. It's been in there for a while now. It's the word compartments. And I want you to know, guys, I know that, that we're prone to try to live compartmentalized lives. Sunday morning, this is a good one. This is like, oh, yeah, I got, the, I got that good compartment. It's real holy. I go to church. It's really cool. We have a good sermon. We get into the word. We get the meat, you know, not the milk. But, like, guys, th- this is not a compartment that you want to give to Jesus. Like, he wants to be part of everything. He wants to saturate your life. If you have more of God in this room than you do when you're at work, repent. If you have more of God in this room than you do when you're with your friends, Repent, because he wants everything. All of me is far too small to give compared to all he gave. And guys, this is all we got. So let's give him everything.